everyone. Welcome to the Dube Show. Today I am joined by Matt Unerfouth, the Dean of the Galisono College of Computing and Information Science at RIT. In this, we talk about the value of education, how AI is changing the landscape, asking alumni for money, and so much more. Enjoy. Two million people in the audience. No, so I've got one of these fancy mugs, right? These like ember mugs that keeps your coffee hot. And I, I used to be against it because one, it's an expensive mug. And two, it's like, if I'm not drinking the coffee fast enough, what's the point? Um, <laughs> but it doesn't prevent it from spilling all over my keyboard, which I just did. So oh, no. it's good now. <laughs> it's good now, but I definitely spilled it everywhere. You need like a sippy cup version, apparently. <laughs> yeah, I do need oh, a sippy no. cup version. Actually, fun fact, I met, there's a, there's a product out there called the Mighty Mug, and it's one of those mugs where you can't knock it over. Have you oh, seen that? Like a wobble, like one of those little kids. S- like <laughs> sort of, yeah, but it, it like it has like this suction cup device on the bottom, and so when you hit it from like above ten or fifteen percent of the, you can't knock it over because it like stays suctioned to the. And I met the guy who co-founded that last weekend, coincidentally. Um, but uh, you know, doesn't help me not having one. So, <laughs> how's your how's your day going? Doing pretty good. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. That's good. It's a snowy day here in Rochester, New York. Is it snowing? <laughs> yes. Oh, wow. Well, slowly calming down. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I don't necessarily miss that, but um, have, have, have there been any snow days like in the past couple of years? Like, who? Um, you know, it's probably been about four or five years. Um, yeah. But the first winter I moved up here to Rochester, it was a pretty uh, cold one. Yeah. It was like 2014. Um, yeah. And I think they might have called off twice. But of course, it's the not whole day. No, 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 no. Back in 2014. Okay. Uh, I think, you know, it wasn't the snow. It was just it was so cold. They were worried about folks going to school and, and things like that outside. Huh. Uh, but no, this know. year, this year, nothing much. <laughs> so when I was there um, for I think we had one, it was during finals, which was awesome. Um, <laughs> one final got postponed to the new year because there was like six feet of snow that just dumped overnight or something crazy. Uh, but that was the only time ever. And it was only after two o'clock and the exam was at like 2.15. So we got really lucky. <laughs> Discrete math exam. I don't know if I was ready for it, but I don't, then again, I don't know if I was ready for it after the new year. <laughs> Um, just got to worry about it all over Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I know that's the worst, right? That's why I like doing them before. Um, are they, in, are, are students in exams right now? They are. Yeah. It started, yeah. uh, halfway through last week and it finishes up on Friday. Okay. Okay. So you joined RIT in 2014. I did. Okay. What, what, why the switch to RIT from, so, from, cause you were uh, in New York city before, right? Yeah. So I, I started, uh, my career as a faculty member at city university of New York, uh, back in 2006. Um, and then I started everything there in, 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 in Queens college was where my laboratory was. Um, uh, you know, I think my, my area of research has always been using AI technology to try to make useful applications for people who are deaf and hard of hearing. And so being in a big city like New York, there was lots of people. So that meant that you certainly could recruit like people who are deaf and hard of hearing to kind of test out some technology you made or, or do some experiments or something. Um, 
And I even used to like run a summer program there for high school students who were deaf and hard of hearing so that they could kind of get like a little research experience over the summer, get them kind of excited about computing and things. The trouble was, I mean, um, you know, I, I think during the summertime when I ran that program, like the language of my laboratory became sign language and I would sign and we, we could recruit a lot of folks. But then during the rest of the academic year, it, it wasn't like that. Like there, there weren't deaf students um, mm -hmm. uh, of any significant numbers at, at the university. And although I could get really good computing students to work at the lab, and I could get some great deaf students to also work at the lab at other times to like recruit folks, I couldn't quite crack crack the the thing to figure out how to get uh, like a great deaf computing student to be working yeah. at my lab. So, um, you know, back in 2014, um, uh, a job advertisement was forwarded my way for an opening uh, at RIT. And of course, I knew what RIT was. I mean, uh, working in, you know, deaf technology, everybody knows about NTID and a thousand deaf students on the RIT campus because mm -hmm. of, of the National Technical Institute for the Deaf there. Mm -hmm. um, and I had visited before. And like the job ad, I read it and it sounded like somebody wrote it for me. Like it was, oh, we're looking for a mid-career faculty member to come and join RIT and do research on accessibility technology for people with disabilities and I was like, okay, I, I have to apply to this. I, I yeah. mean, I, I was happy in New York City. I wasn't planning on moving, but when I when I saw that, it it just got exciting. Um, yeah. And I think the big two differences when I moved to RIT, the first one was because there's all of these uh, uh, really skilled sign language interpreters and a lot of support services and things like that on a campus. Um, it was really possible to recruit deaf and hard of hearing master's students and then PhD students and have mm -hmm. them be successful at actually doing a PhD here. Um, it's also a place uh, where you can go put up a poster, hang it up on a wall and say, hey, we need 35 people to like do an experiment. We need 35 deaf and hard of hearing people to, to do an experiment to try out some piece of software we need. And you could have a, a list signed up in a day. And uh, after all of the logistical things we used to go through, even in New York City, to try to recruit people to test things out, that was just amazing. And that, and that really, like, accelerated stuff. So, yeah, that, that was the big reason for the leap uh, because of the research field I did. Yeah, that's great. I think um, it, it's, it's fascinating. And so, but the, but the person who sent you the job posting... Did they read through your 45 pages of resume? <laughs> Perhaps. So yes, we do have a 45 page resume. Um, <laughs> well, in my defense, um, it's, it's, oh, a here we go. This of, is the, this oh, is yeah, the academic in you. Up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's this a is the thesis review, right? So, and, uh, grad students that, that work in, um, computing or, or are studying, we teach them how to create a curriculum vitae, uh, basically a really long resume that absolutely everything you have ever done as an academic gets in there, every paper, every, every little thing. Um, and yep, mine is a, an so, exciting page turner of 45 pages, do um, you do you feel like a badass? Like you, you go to like Kinko's, you print out 45 pages and then you just slam it down during the interview. You're like, right? 
I haven't tried that one yet. Because mine, that's mine's awesome. like a, mine's like a feather. You know, it's like, oh, <laughs> what was that? <laughs> Shh, uh, I'll do it again. <laughs> and I mean, you know, something that I often like talk about with students when we're trying to like, you know, write a paper on something. It's a lot easier to write something that's too long than it is to actually write something that's short. So yeah. actually, the the challenge of compressing something down into just a couple pages, that's really tough. I I don't. I don't know if I ever wasn't doing academia and I had to have like a normal resume right. to compress that thing down to two pages. I, I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a great segue into our friends in the AI world. Would using AI to do that, that sounds like something that's very common and likely. It is indeed. Um, I mean, that, yeah. so, you know, I feel like during my career, I've gotten to see a couple different interesting leaps in what yeah. computers can do. Um, uh, certainly, um, I started studying computing well before, you know, smartphones and having a computer in your pocket was mm -hmm. a thing. Um, and as someone who studies how people use tech and uh, evaluates whether anything's a good idea and you test it out with people, the idea that you have another platform like that to do things is really exciting. It opens up new applications. But then after I started doing work in um, uh, creating technology and software for people who are deaf and hard of hearing, a lot of it was about speech and language tech. So some of it was on tools to make sign language animations or things that uh, tools that could allow for automatic creating of captions with speech. Mm, yes. And so the second big leap was really maybe about a decade or so ago when um, there was a lot of new neural network based uh, approaches in artificial intelligence. And there was another just huge leap in performance. And I think suddenly technology like automatic speech recognition that had always been a little bit niche, like, you know, you could get like Dragon naturally speaking, yeah. you, you could go train it for a long time and, and, and use it to your own voice. Suddenly, about 10 years ago, it started to really become seriously powerful and accurate enough that I got really excited and started to shift a little more of my focus at, at our laboratory towards automatic captioning tools. So mm -hmm. could you have a meeting like this and, and auto automatically have the captions appear or have somebody go to a lecture and do it? And, you know, 10 years ago, that sounded a little bit iffy because uh, everybody right. was, was thinking about speech recognition from the way it had been before this. Um, and so the kind of work we were doing was, okay, this is probably going to be awful, but how could we make it better for people, right? Could we, could we indicate in the captions when the tool isn't quite confident of the word it heard, and then maybe that would be useful for the user and stuff like this? It got better. The, the tech yeah. got better, and, and, and suddenly we could do all these powerful things with those neural-based uh, AI techniques. I feel like this is now like the third leap, is all of this generative AI stuff. Um, the, I mean, some of it, we, uh, folks that do, you know, technology and speech and language had seen large language models for a long time. And we had kind of known, like, these things can look a little bit magical when you interact with them. But the idea that suddenly it's actually like out there and people are experimenting with it and trying to use it in all sorts of different ways. Um, that's, I think, the exciting thing. So similar to that first leap I mentioned of the smartphone in your pocket, suddenly mm -hmm. everybody was trying it out, using it in a new way, figuring out in their day-to-day -day life what they might do with it, 
it made this ecosystem of people making apps for these devices because it would fill these different needs. I think that's kind of what we've just seen with the generative AI. And so, as you said, could I, could you get a 45 page resume down to two pages? I haven't tried it yet, but yeah, I'll give it a whirl after this. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Buffer overflow. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. And I also think, you know, we've a lot of during my career, we've been studying like how to make like custom AI tools for people with disabilities to do different things. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know, like, Simplify text if, if you have trouble reading text, for example. Well, the idea that there's now almost this like utility knife of an AI tool that can do all these things, like summarize things, simplify things, reorganize things, that's going to be really interesting uh, yeah. in many applications, but also in tech for people with disabilities. Because right. now it's something that's in every web browser, or you could add chat GPT or whatever else to anybody's phone. And mm-hmm. you don't need a custom specialty app or de- or whatever. You can use the same thing everybody else is using, but there's all these interesting ways to use it. Yeah, totally. So that that you know, actually, I use uh, Whisper, which is one of the OpenAI products, to transcribe all the audio for this podcast, and then I upload those and I try to timestamp them um, to so you can say at two minutes and forty seven seconds, you know. Matt was talking. It's easy in this situation because it could be half wrong, which Matt, but, um, <laughs> uh, and then you can like go to that or you can just see the text and it works for a number of reasons. It's not just for, um, I know the accessibility is huge, but for SEO, for example, if you're searching on a particular topic and you can see, oh, we're talking about accessibility or talking about AI, you can go right to it and then you can listen in or you can read where it was. So I think it's pretty cool. Speaking of AI, um, how how is school how's RIT I mean you're the big boss now how is how is RIT embraced AI what like you know I'm sure there's tons of things to think about there's potential um, you know everything from cheating to AI pulling in you know if you're helping it with a paper or with code you know using source code that may not be open source or licensed properly like but also it's such a great tool so I'm really really curious to know like how is RIT embracing AI and what do you how is education doing that? Uh, well, you called me the big boss. What I'll say is about two <laughs> years ago, I, I crossed more into the, the academic leadership side of things. I, I yeah. became the dean of our Golisano College of Computing and Information Sciences, uh, of which I know you're an alum. Um, <laughs> and uh, so asking about sort of, you know, what has RIT been doing in AI? I think actually the story is a little bit longer than just kind of the excitement about the generative AI very recently. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, when I think about sort of the portfolio of all the different areas of research that the faculty in our college do, Mm -hmm. really the trend over the past 15 years has just been a bigger piece of the pie being AI. Mm. Or folks that were doing work in some other area of computing, suddenly there's an AI methodology to what they're doing as well. So they might be working in cybersecurity, software engineering, some other area, but just about everything has like an AI twist to what you can do. And that's kind of some of the exciting frontier in many ways. So so there's that progression. In the curriculum side of the house, students clamor for AI 
courses, right? So, so those AI courses, the machine learning courses, they fill up real fast, right? Yeah. Everybody's on the course registration system trying back to get in, into those. <laughs> back in my day, the classes that filled up quickly were like wines and beers of the world. <laughs> well, <laughs> that one too, but you know, I think it's neck and neck with an AI class nowadays, if that tells you something. That says a lot. Um, and so, you know, slowly what we've been doing is kind of just adding more in the core of, of the degree programs because we just realized everybody was picking it as an elective, but you know what? This is now fundamental to being a computing professional nowadays to have some of this sensibility about uh, artificial intelligence. So much so that we even made a whole master's degree in artificial intelligence that opened huh. this year. Now, we've had other ones where, I mean, you could do a master's in computer science and just fill up your courses with a bunch of AI courses. But um, I think just as another sign of the times, we've created this whole new program that's a master's in AI. Um, I think maybe where you were starting with the question, though, was what has happened with this whole generative AI? Because now you can have it do your homework, right? So, um, yeah. I mean, where a lot of folks, I mean, I think a lot of the press about this has been about like, oh no, is this the end of the essay or something like that, uh, writing essays in college or something. And I think there is a lot of worry about uh, what happens when it's really easy to generate fluent text in that way. Right. Um, what has a lot of us uh, pondering what we're about to do next in pedagogy is actually the fact that this stuff can write computer code too, right? Yeah. And you might, if you read some English text that these things generate, sometimes you can sort of tell. Sometimes you can tell a little bit about style. It's getting so good that actually it's hard to tell. But um, when it generates computer code, it's trained to make it look really fluent. Mm -hmm. And the trouble is, if there's a bug in that code, it's insidious. I mean, it, the code will look beautiful, but there's a terrible flaw in it someplace, yeah. right? So, yeah. um, but it works pretty good on introductory courses. So yeah. what we're now facing is how do we help educate a whole nother generation of computing professionals where there's now a tool that you literally can give it your homework assignment <laughs> or an introductory programming class, and it does yeah. a pretty good job yeah. And the trouble is the output is computer code, right? So it's actually a little tough to catch. Oh, yeah. Um, this is the topic of a lot of faculty meetings around the college. <laughs> um, you know, where I think we're headed. Well, what we're doing this year. Yeah. This year in our college, the rule is if a faculty member is teaching a computing course, you have to say something in your syllabus about what your policy is on whether you can use generative AI or not, or for what assignments. Uh. And if like, you've got like a, a course where everybody's teaching like five different sections of the course, because everybody needs intro to programming, you right. have to have the same policy across them. But we're treating this semester as a bit of an experiment to kind of encourage faculty to, some want to embrace it, some want to be like, oh no, don't use it, that's cheating. We're, yeah. we're trying it all. Uh, we're a big college. So we've got about 5,000 computing students so we can also try this strategy a little bit of uh, let's try a bunch of things. Let's see what works. Something, something's yeah. going to take. And then this spring, we're going to bring it back together and have a lot of conversations among faculty about what worked, what didn't work. Um, you know, early directions that I'm hearing from faculty is if it's an introductory course, we really have to do something to make sure that folks are able to code themselves. And yes. maybe that means like more activities in the classroom, uh, yeah. live things, that kind of stuff. Mm. As folks get more senior, though, through their degree, 
if they don't know how to use these tools, that's actually a problem. I mean, they need yes. to be able to do this and use Copilot or, or any of these assistive tools uh, yeah. when they go out in the profession. Yeah, hundred percent. And and it's funny, all the things that you've mentioned resonate so much with me. So the, I was, I use Copilot a lot. I've been using it throughout, I was using it throughout the beta and now I pay for it, uh, which is the, um, which is GitHub's like code, uh, Gen AI on, and it's hundred percent built on top of open AI. Um, and it wrote some JavaScript code for me. And I'm like, why doesn't this, I, I couldn't think about why it wouldn't work for a good 10 minutes. And I was like pulling my hair out and, uh, and then I reading it and reading it. And like, if I didn't know that, you know, about like, you know, like hoisting variables in JavaScript, um, I probably would have just given up, but I recognized, I was like, wait a minute, that part's wrong. So I rewrote it. Right. And, and now it's beautiful. But what I love about it so much is it's helped keep me fresh and it's helped <laughs> teach me things that maybe I've forgotten or didn't know. Um, cause I can select some, I can, it's, it's kind of weird. Like I can be very, very lonely, but my friend is now, oh, is chat GP or, uh, <laughs> is GitHub copilot. Cause I can select some code and I'd be like, explain this, or why am I getting this error? Or, um, how would you make this better? Like, so you have a function or a method or whatever, that's ginormous. How would you make this cleaner? How would you make this better? And it can tell you, and it can be like, I think you should do it this way and you can accept or reject it. And I find it to be really fascinating. Um, but also, I think that you personally, I think that you do need to have some fundamentals of understanding how you know computer science works. In in a lot of fields, the way that you help to cultivate somebody to be an expert mm. is you usually start with showing them a lot of examples of products that other folks have produced. So, for so example, if you want to it's teach a bit somebody, like training a model, sort of. I mean. <laughs> If you want somebody to be a great creative writer, yeah. you would have them read a lot of literature and talk about the literature, talk about the writing. Uh, similar in many of the arts, right? You would look and consume and critique a lot of it. Historically, that has not been a way that we think about education and computing, mm. but that idea of uh, being a discerning critic of something that might not be perfect or something that could be improved, um, may need to be more about how we think about and start teaching computing if what it means to be a computing professional is also working with these ai tools that sometimes are producing beautiful looking but wrong uh code yeah. um i mean we see this in the profession if you think about code review mm -hmm. um, or sometimes like pair programming kind of things mm -hmm. Um, and, and maybe sort of, you know, uh, chatting with your buddy, chat GPT or copilot while your code <laughs> yeah, is wherever my rubber duck programming. <laughs> ran away. Uh, uh, but like that, that idea of sort of like be a critic, be yes. uh, able to kind of consume something that's not quite right, I think is going to have to be an earlier and really important part of computer programming nowadays. Yeah. I think that used to be something that happened later in the training of somebody, maybe when yeah. they took a software engineering course near the end of their computing degree or something, and they learned how to work with a bigger team of people, maybe they would get into code review and stuff like this. But uh, yeah, I think it's it's become the new skill. Uh, I, I um, this, this might sound like a sort of a strange analogy, but it's very, I think to me it works. Um, when I learned how to, before I knew how to use a debugger, I was doing like, you know, print statement debugging. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and once I learned how to use a debugger, I was like, this feels like cheating and I'm 10 times better now. 
And I think AI for me is also helping me get there. Like it's not going to solve all the problems, but it's going to help me become more efficient, less, you know, use less of my own energy, right? Like I'm sort of more of the conductor than I am the, um, um, you know, the, the, the guy tightening the guitar strings or that's a terrible one, but you know what I mean? Like I'm more yeah. of the chef than I am the cook that's just flipping burgers. Um, and so I find to me, that seems much more interesting because I love creating stuff and, and the faster that, I can create things, the better, I think. Well, that debugger analogy is interesting because that actually comes up in a lot of discussions and debates about mm. how we ought to be educating the next gen of, of computing professionals because, um, you know, one way of thinking about how we, we approach chat GPT or tools mm -hmm. like Copilot from an education mm -hmm. perspective is... Well, maybe we should introduce it early on, but then maybe we don't do a ton of hand-holding throughout an entire degree. Hmm. Instead, we just try to build some competency in it, and then we let the students use it if they want or figure out their own style of using it. Right. And in many ways, that's more analogous to how debuggers are yeah. treated in the curriculum for a lot of computing programs nowadays. Some early course or two, you might get taught how to use your debugger. But in yeah. general, you're not going to hear like professors bring it up a lot during your whole degree. They're just going to kind of assume like you figured it out. Like you, 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 right. you, you showed you what a debugger was. If you needed it, you'll <laughs> use it. And, and maybe that's where this is headed uh, with, with Copilot. Um, I don't know. I think, feel like we're kind of searching for models or analogies that might help us. And a lot of the ones that I hear about things like ChatGPT are stuff like, oh, it's like the calculator. And, you know, when calculators yeah. were invented, it didn't stop the need for math classes and everybody was worried about them at first. But, yeah. you know, we figured it out. Uh, maybe we'll get there. Maybe it's a calculator. Um, or maybe it's like how we do debuggers. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Or it's going to flip the whole field upside down. I don't know. Um, I think there's a couple different ways that this could go. I, I, just, I just can't wait to, like, like, you know, <clears throat> tell, tell, you know, I used to write you know, my code with, you know, hole punches and paper. You're like, man, you sound old. And now it's like, I used to write my code by hand. Like there was no AI back in my day. And you're like, wow, you're really old. It's like, it's like, where are we going to be? You know, like, anyways. Um, okay. So I'm, I'm curious about education in general and, and, you know, obviously AI is, is a big thing. And, and I think at all levels of education, that's being, you know, high school, middle school, I, may, I don't know, maybe elementary school. Um, there's been a lot of talks about that, but I'm curious what you think the, you know, what are the current trends in computer science education and what impact they have on students? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, the big answer on that one is what, what's about to happen with yeah. AI. Right. So, but yeah. I'll set that aside for a moment. Yeah. Um, other trends that I've been seeing in computing education um, is uh, an approach to the field that really thinks about how computing needs to be considered in the way that it intersects with mm -hmm. other disciplines. Mm. Um, that you know, we we use computing to do things, and at times you also need to provide training and education to somebody that more explicitly gives them competency in a second field as well. So. Right. You see examples of this at some universities that have degrees that are sort of computing plus something else. Um, I think we see trends of uh, an increased awareness of the importance of electives and minors and things like that that a student would take along the way where they figure out maybe a sub-industry or field where, yes, mm -hmm. they want to use computing to do something, but they want to also know about this other intersection with the world. 
Um, so at RIT, all students have to do something called an immersion. It's kind of mm -hmm. like a miniature minor where you got to take a couple courses to get a little bit of depth into something. And then usually you take two more classes, you get a minor, right? There's, there's, there's things like that that you can do if you really got interested. There's the in. carrot. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> You're so close. Just two more classes. Yeah. Um, the, the other side of that, I think, is, you know, there's been a lot of research on what really draws people to the computing mm -hmm. field. And I think there are some, some students where, you know, they get really excited about tech in high school, or they think of themselves as like a tech person or a computing right. person. And, and they know, like, they know they want to go to, to university and, and yeah. study computing. I think there's a lot of other folks that we're not catching yet in the computing field that would be awesome in the field, but we're not capturing their imagination or attention yet mm. because we sometimes present the field as like a puzzle, a techie thing, a cool gadget, a futurist kind of thing. Whereas in reality, you know, computing changes the world in many different ways. And it's, right. it's a powerful way to change the world. And so reframing the field with that interdisciplinary view of how does computing allow you to address social problems? How does right. computing allow you to do things that benefits people, improves lives? Yeah. Research has shown that that resonates a lot more with students that are currently underrepresented in the field. So women, wow. people of color, people with yeah. disabilities. Um, and so, you know, our, our college, for example, uh, if you uh, do the, the Wayback Machine and take a look at our college <laughs> website over the years, a trend you might notice is that now we kind of frame our college as we prepare students to improve lives and change the world through computing. And that wasn't an accidental shift. That was a really careful strategy to think about how we can draw more folks into the field um, right. from that perspective. So I think that's, that's certainly a trend I've seen. Yeah. Um, RIT always has had a long history too of co-op. So doing a bunch that. of internships during, during the course of your degree, um, it helps to pay for your degree too, uh, because <laughs> you don't pay tuition when you're doing that, you're making some money for a semester. Um, I've seen more and more universities go that direction. I mean, so RIT has mm. been there for like 50 years doing co-ops. Um, but, uh, I think other folks are kind of catching on to the idea yeah. that, yeah a lot changes when a student gets that first workplace or real world experience. Mm -hmm. And I know from like the professor side of it, if I'm interacting with a student, I can kind of tell if they've already been out on co-op already, because like the kind of questions that they ask in the classroom are like a little more pointed. Uh, yeah. Like, you know, actually when I was doing this, I saw, I saw we were doing it this <laughs> way, you know, th this kind of stuff, which is great. And not yeah. normally something that you would see in the classroom at most universities. Yeah. Um, it also keeps us very uh, honest in terms of, are we really teaching the absolute latest stuff? Yes. Because it's not just going to be alumni coming back and telling us that. It's going to be our own students. As soon as they come back from a co-op, they're going to tell you yeah. like, oh no, you're teaching the old version of this. When I was in the in the in my co-op last semester, I was using the new version, that, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know. So the co-op thing was one of my favorites at RIT. And I don't know a single person that did a co-op that said it wasn't, we shouldn't do these. It wasn't worth it. And everyone that came back said that they learned so much more on the co-op, like, because it's real world experience. You're applying the things you've learned. Um, and like, 
you're also getting paid. So it's way more exciting. Right. Like, <laughs> and it kind of like, it kind of warms you up into the idea of like joining the workforce. Like, you know, instead of like after four or five years, Hey, here you go. And you're like, I hope you can swim. Right? <laughs> you, like, you, you learn a little bit along the way. And I think that yeah. I, to me, it's, I don't, I'm surprised on every school's already done this. Um, and I feel like they're all while, behind. people will do a co-op and then they'll realize, Oh my gosh, I hate this or something. Right. You know, yeah. Oh, totally. Realize, like, you know, a company of that size, oh, no, I don't want to work there. Or or yeah. this part of the country that I lived in for my co-op that summer, oh, I, I didn't like this. And that's actually really useful, too. And yeah. better, better you figure it out on, like, a three-month co-op rather than go off and move to what you thought was a permanent job and then have to figure this out. 100%. I think um, Greg, Greg Koberger may or may not be in the audience here, and... <laughs> He, I remember this. He, one or two of his co-ops he did with a startup company, and now he's founded his own startup company, and it's very successful. Um, uh, Greg, when you when you decide to send me some money, I'll give you a free ad here, even though you're a frequent podcast guest. Um, <laughs> but but because of that, he he gained a lot of. I believe you know, I'm speaking for him now, but I think he gained a lot of confidence in knowing like what it's like to join a startup, what that life looks like, versus joining something like you know Apple, Microsoft, Google your typical massive companies that a lot of people want to work at right out of school. So I think it's immensely valuable. Um, so, I, okay. So there's always like, you know, if you read the comments, which they say, don't read the comments on the internet, there's always <laughs> people saying like education is broken. Right. And, you know, I know that there's a lot of really famous tech people that have said this and, and uh, there's a lot of different schools of thoughts. And so I'm really, what I'm curious about is around sort of like, where do you, one, see need for change in education? And two, what is that change that you think needs to happen? Um, is it at a small level? Is it, you know, kind of a, a, a U.S. or a global thing? I think the, the trend that I've been noticing is it's a much more crowded market of choices. Okay. So there's everything from like a website where you teach yourself to code to yeah. some sort of online massive course you could do to a programming boot camp. Um, I mean, other things I'd put on that scale would be uh, sort of like accelerated sort of programs, maybe at like a for-profit university. Uh, and then you get into things like full degrees that you might have at a traditional nonprofit uh, university, whether it's a public institution or a private one. Um, now, I work at a, a private nonprofit <laughs> university that offers four years degrees, but we also do other stuff too. I mean, we do these kind of certificates that people can do in a shorter period of time targeted more to professionals. Um, so I think right now what you're seeing is there's a crowded market of a lot of players to offering things at these different points on that spectrum I mentioned. And then even more traditional universities are experimenting with mm -hmm. uh, degree programs or, or non-credit programs even that are shorter in experience, shorter in the amount of time right. to help folks get some experience. Um, what I have seen is there is still a very big value, if someone can do it, to doing like a university degree. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it, it can be expensive. You look at tuition prices, they look kind of uh, uh, surprising. A lot of things there. I mean, first of all, a lot of public universities have gotten much less government support um, over the years and have to raise that money through tuition. The other thing is when you see a tuition number for a university, that's really sort of the sticker price. I mean, kind of like buying a car, that's the starting point. But um, 
there's usually a lot of financial aid and scholarships. Really, that's put, sort of putting the max end on things. And, mm-hmm. you know, from the perspective of supporting students that don't have the resources to pay for a lot to go to university, it's actually kind of better that you see higher sticker prices there. Because what that means is some people might be paying that price, but then the university is using a lot of that money to offer financial aid and scholarships to folks that absolutely can't pay that price. And everybody at that university might be paying a slightly different price depending on what their their financial circumstances are. Um, There's a big jump in what your earning is after getting a university degree, especially if it's in a a very career relevant field, right? So I'm in computing, I feel good about this. I know you go, you somebody go gets goes and gets a computing degree. Yeah, it's going to be worth it, right? Because they're gonna they're gonna earn more. And then, you know, in studies of well, what happens after graduation, because you know, they didn't work for four years, they went to university, and, and now they have that debt from some tuition debt. Mm -hmm. When does it catch up? You catch up pretty quick, uh, if you're in computing. Uh, so depends on how, how much you spend and other things, but usually in your mid to late thirties, it's, you're catching up, right? Yeah. Because the higher earning power, uh, that you've got from the degree. Um, I think, you know, going to a university, I think also has a really formative, uh, kind of experience for students too, because, uh, for many, if they're doing a residential kind of program, they're, they're staying at the university, they're not working, they're not commuting from home. It might be their first experience living on their own, uh, trying out kinds of new social environments and joining a club and something they never thought they would join. And you never know what might happen. Um, You know, engaging in an entrepreneurial activity on their campus, uh, for example, Uh, those kind of things. You just don't know where it's going to head. And a lot of that spontaneity and being part of that environment and that setting is a big part of the experience too. Um, I think it's good that there's options at different levels and there's ways that folks could do like a mid-career switch and, and take a programming boot camp and, and do that as well. Um, I think there's always going to be some folks for whom a four-year university degree is the right answer for a lot mm-hmm. of those reasons I mentioned. Um, but even, even four-year universities are getting into the business of more masters or certificates or things like this too because we realize some folks want other options yeah interesting the the um uh who was it? alexis ohanian one of the founders of reddit.com um pe- people would ask him a lot he would do a lot of live talks and i don't know if it's because he wants to be like uh, a politician or something one day but <laughs> it seems like it um but he gets asked all the time like is it worth uh, going to, to school. Actually, Gary Vayner- Vaynerchuk also gets asked this all the time by parents. Is it worth going, paying for a four-year degree? They're really expensive. Is it worth it? Because um, then you also hear about the people who didn't go and like, you know, maybe they're just edge cases like Bill Gates and, and you know, the dropouts like Bill Gates and, and, and Zuckerberg and those people. Um, but what he said, which I thought to be a really good point is like, if you're able to go, go. You can always try your entrepreneurial ideas while you're there and if you fail you're still in a safe spot um you haven't like put all your chips in and like you know you're not all in on the idea because what happens when you're all in and you and now you've got nothing to fall back on or you've got no support system there so i i really liked his answer on the on the Mm -hmm. should you go to college basically 
Um, and Gary Gary Vaynerchuk, I think, says a lot of similar things um, to that to that regard. I think it's um, also very discipline specific too, because I think it really yeah. depends on kind of the field that someone is studying. Um, when it's an area that you know there's really strong demand for folks yeah. to work in that in that field, um, I think it can change the calculus on that quite a bit. Um, yeah. yeah. So that's an interesting question. Like, do you think schools should? encourage students into those fields or let them do whatever they want? I think that we need to provide the choices for students. Um, but I think, I think the world's a better place if we give folks more information and then they can make an informed choice, right? Yeah. So I don't think that every high schooler is in a family circumstance where maybe their parents didn't go to college Right. Or maybe they're not getting advice about what is the best area to go work in or what is a hot field or something, sure. right? Sure. Um, some do, but many don't. And they may just look at like kind of the, the catalog of all the choices and just sort of pick one that sounds interesting or something. And I think that's great. I think it's good to be able to try a class or two and things and then see if it's your passion. But getting some more of that information to students about, oh, yeah, like, here's what we're expecting as job trends in that field over the next couple of years. And yeah. uh, what was the average, you know, starting salary for people who graduated in that program uh, over the past couple of years? Oh, that's interesting. And what percentage of people had a job in six months after they right. did that degree program, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> sort of more intentionally choosing your degree than just, ah, oh, it sounds all right, or it's easy for me, or I'll be fine in four years. Now, if it's something that you try it and you hate it, right? I mean, it kind of doesn't matter at that point if you could get <laughs> yeah, a good job in it, right? So yeah, true. there is a matchmaking to this, right? And you're yeah. hoping to find kind of a sweet spot among mm -hmm. all those different factors. But uh, if we don't give that information or expose it really clearly to students also, I think we're doing them a disservice. So yeah. uh, I agree. some universities do a better job of this than others where they are very clear on, you know, starting salary stuff and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, uh, but it is, a it is a debate in higher education. I mean, because um, certainly folks in some of the, the science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, STEM sort of fields, sure, we like this because usually our students are doing pretty good when we graduate. But um, individuals from the humanities, you know, would really talk about kind of the way that education transforms your mind and forms you as a person. And some of this sort of career and, and dollar sign oriented stuff feels uh, very different than that, right? So um, like everything in higher education, there is debate. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's good. But, but getting that information and choices out to students is important. Yeah, I think it's good. I think it's a really good idea to get it in front of them, let them see the options and sort of, you know, hey, look, this is what things are going to look like or look like now. Um, but you still can make your own choice. I think that's important. Um, so speaking of after you graduate <laughs> <laughs> and you, you so you graduate, you know, you're paying off your loans if you have them. Um, and then how, how do you approach? OK, so. How do you approach the topic of asking alumni for money after they had just spent a bunch of money on school? This is a question I, I so yeah. I had to get in here because uh, I desperately want to know. <laughs> sure. Well, so um, when folks move into sort of higher education leadership positions, a big part of the job is kind of the advancement side of things, of mm -hmm. kind of reaching out to alumni or 
companies or supporters to try to raise funds for the university. Um, although the tuition price can look high, it actually doesn't pay for everything that the university needs to operate. And so universities, depends on the, the type of university and, and, and things like this, a good chunk of how it operates may come from philanthropic dollars mm -hmm. or philanthropic dollars that at one point went into an endowment for that institution that produces funds for them to operate. Um, I think also when a university wants to do new things, um, yeah philanthropic dollars wind up being the thing that allows that to happen. That's kind of a new program or some, some new, uh, you know, opportunity or space for students or things like that. Um, sometimes it's tough to fit that in your standard operating budget and save up all those funds to create something new like this. A gift can be the thing that makes the step change in that case. Right. So then I think when, when approaching alumni or supporters about this, I think part of it is really about listening. Um, yeah. You can't go in with like a whole list of, well, we, we need this, we need this, here's, here's our laundry list or something. Um, <laughs> you know, sure, somebody might donate some money, but in general, if you get a chance to talk with alums, um, you're actually getting really good data from them about what their experience was and what they're seeing in the world. Yeah. Um, so my, my disciplinary background is human computer interaction. What that means is using psychology methods like interviews and focus groups and experiments to study things regarding people in tech. So the idea of having a really good interview conversation with somebody and learning a lot from it is just kind of baked in to the way I think about stuff as a scientist. And so the idea that you get to go around and talk to a bunch of alums and hear their story and hear from them, like, what did you think was most important? And what do you think we ought to be thinking about next? Yeah. That alone is hugely important. Sometimes they'll even donate their time and they'll come back and talk to our students or be like peer mentors. And then if they have some money to give and what you want to understand is, well, what did they care about? What actually matches with something that resonates with them and something they would love to see us be able to do for students next? And a lot of that really comes from them reflecting on their own experience. Maybe something happened during their time at university where somebody was able to step in and help at a certain point, or uh, they realized that they had a challenge during their time at university. And they could imagine that, well, if I made this donation, it would make a scholarship or help create like a, a, a center for students to, to help them if they're having uh, some kind of challenge and it might evoke what they had experienced themselves. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that is really sort of where it all comes down to. It has to be authentic. It has to actually relate to what the person cares about. Um, I think you also have to talk about them with what that institution means to them um, right. and how it impacted their life. And sure, sometimes it's a philanthropic donation, but a lot of times it's really more just staying connected, having them interact with students, be a mentor, um, or just get some good advice. Yeah. Uh, I mean, especially when you're chatting with folks that have had really interesting life experiences or have been leaders of different companies themselves, you know, those are folks who probably would charge for their time if they were just giving out advice to people, <laughs> right? So right. sure, I'll take the free consulting advice. Um, yeah. That's, I don't know, I think you've got to go into it that way. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a that's a very good way of, of thinking of it. Um, sort of building a community, but also you're getting value that's more than just monetary value. 
Um, however, my I guess money doesn't hurt, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so for example, the um, when I chat with a lot of alums, I'll ask them about, you know, well, what was the most impactful thing that you thought, you know, during your time? And they'll t- talk about different things, but mm-hmm. co-op comes up a lot. So the fact yeah. that they had that internship experience, right? Um, and what I use that for as a dean is kind of uh, a compass that tells me that we're on the right course by continuing to keep that going, right? Mm-hmm. Because if alumni are telling me that, like, that's the thing that, like, changed it all for me, and that's the thing that really helped me figure out what was next, okay, we, we got to protect that, got to keep it going. Yeah. Um, when I've had conversations with alums about well, what are you seeing with like this generative AI stuff being used in the computing field? And I ask them things like, okay, are, are you somebody who hires computing folks? Okay, let's say in a couple years, you know, in the future, you were having an interview with somebody for a position at your company. What if they didn't know how to use Copilot or didn't know how to use these AI tools? What would you think yeah. about that? Yeah. And they tell me like, oh no, that would be a problem. Yes, that's that's a that's a sound bite that I can bring back to the college, talk about with faculty, and yes. we can really think about like, okay, this is what I'm hearing from alumni. I have chatted with like 35 alums at these variety of companies, and they've all told me this and this, and then it steers the course, right? And so mm-hmm. that kind of insight um, we're going to get from from keeping these connections alive. Yeah, hundred percent. Actually, that's that's. You know, when we met in San Jose, like Campbell, California, that's some of the stuff that we talked about was, yep. you know, AI in the workplace and, and what trends are happening. And, and uh, I'm pretty sure I have, a, I have a, uh, a knack for talking too much. And I'm pretty sure we were scheduled to meet for like a half an hour, an hour. And I think it took like a couple hours. So, <laughs> but I, I enjoyed the conversation. It was a good chat. Yes. Yeah. What and you might not have known at the, the time is that you were part of a big study I was sort of doing of talking with a lot of folks around Silicon Valley about like, where's this AI stuff headed? What, what do you think we got to worry yeah. about next? Right? Yeah. And um, that was really formative. Yeah. Yeah. And for anyone, you know, listening or watching, I do want to make one point that I think if you are not familiar with some of the Gen AI stuff in a year from now, like catch up. Or, you know, like, don't, don't fall too far behind. Because I think it's, it's like, it's, you know, it's like ignoring the computer because it's like new and scary. I think, <laughs> I think it's just going to be, it's going to be everywhere. I don't think you can avoid it in the future. Um, okay. So let's see the last, I guess the last thing I sort of want to, well, there's a couple things I want to uh, finish up with. One of them is how do you support in, in underrepresented, um, you know, people and, 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 sure. and well, what does the school do and how do you look at that? So um, I mentioned that, you know, my, my background's human computer interaction. So a lot of it is studying this intersection with people and tech. Yeah. Um, and I believe it because I've seen it, that if you have got folks that actually are reflecting the diversity of the world on a team or as part of a project, you wind up learning a lot more. Um, so, uh, you know, for example, a lot of my work is on tech for people who are deaf and hard of hearing. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've been able to have a lot of deaf and hard of hearing research team members, whether it's faculty collaborators at other universities or PhD students at our lab yeah. or master students, undergrads. And 
you know, I've been working in that field of accessibility for over 20 years. And there are still times where we will do a study or something, or we'll interview somebody and ask them how they want to use some tech. And there'll be some quote in an interview. And I don't know what to make of it, right? And then I'll, I'll talk about it with one of my deaf and hard of hearing colleagues. And they're like, oh, no, yeah, it means this. Because their own personal experience gives mm. them that window of insight, right? It also gives them the idea of how should we as a field be prioritizing the agenda of what we ought to be working on next in a way that doesn't just represent a tiny slice of the world, right? Right. So part of what we do is, as I mentioned before, you know, rebranding a little bit the field. Like it's about computing impacting the world. And that brings in more students that might not have otherwise been interested in tech. But then once we get them here, we've got to support them. So uh, at, at our college, we have a big uh, diversity initiatives office that has a large program called Women in Computing, and mm -hmm. then another program called Computing Organization for Multicultural Scholars that comes, C-O-M-S. Okay. And both of those groups are kind of like clubs. They're sort of affinity groups for right. students that want to connect with peers in that space. But we supercharge them by adding a professional staff member and ad admin support to the clubs and a budget. So they can do a lot uh, more than they might have been able to do if they had to just self-organize and do all the fundraising themselves for things. Right. And so it creates like a community inside the college where students can find peers and we also wind up having a lot of their activities be things that reaches out to local middle schools. So for example, the Women in Computing organization does a lot of activities with local Girl Scout troops to kind of get them excited about computing. And so it's kind of like a long game to kind of get a bigger pipeline of, of students interested, but then they're all doing it together. So then they've got a community sense. And then because they had that experience together, the alums from that program come back and connect and do mentorship stuff. And right. so it's kind of connecting a lot of dots to create this community and this activity. Um, and similarly for students of color, we've got that other group comms that I mentioned. So where we're going with a lot of this is uh, really trying to increase the diversity of students in our college who are women or people of color. So the women in computing group has been around for over a decade mm -hmm. and over the past decade, we've more than doubled the percentage of women that are coming into our undergraduate class in the college. Oh, wow. So it's telling us that something there is working, uh, which right. is why we're kind of using that model of affinity groups, supercharged with professional staff and kind of things to do this support. Um, for students with disabilities, especially deaf and hard of hearing, Mm -hmm. RIT also has a lot of supports. I mean, oh, yeah. there's really amazing interpreters and, and captioners uh, on the campus, uh, a lot of other sort of student clubs and support that, you know, I mentioned I moved to RIT because I wanted to be able to have deaf and hard of hearing students on our team. Right. And, you know, if you imagine like a, a graduate mathematics course that PhD students in computing have to take, you know, it takes a really skilled interpreter to be able to in real time interpret all of that into American Sign Language consistently during a whole semester and using the same vocabulary that the student might have used in the last class in the sequence so they don't get confused to really get a student through a graduate education there. Um, and we're doing it. 
we're, we're graduating students through the pipeline uh, that reflects some of this diversity. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of things to do um, in this space. And those are a couple of things we do at RIT, but I, I believe in it because I know it's important. As a computing field, we are not gonna be as good a computing field as we can be if we're only recruiting a tiny slice of the world. We're yeah. gonna ignore things. We're gonna not realize certain things are important. And we're not even going to know what to make of feedback from our users because we don't have the perspective to understand it. It sort of reminds me of, um, I, I use this a lot, is the allegory of the cave, if you're familiar with the allegory of the cave, where Socrates, is, is it Aristotle and Socrates are discussing like, there's these, these if you will, prisoners, and they're, they're chained up. And, and the only thing they can see is the shadows projected in, on the wall in front of them. And it's not until one of the prisoners is able to, and they don't, they don't know the world has color in three dimensions and, and all these sounds and smells and butterflies and whatever. But when one of the prisoners gets out, he's able to see all these things and comes back in to sort of free the rest of the people and they're, they're skeptics, right? Like, oh, we don't need, you know, to do that. Well, this is, this is life here. And, and so I, I, it reminds me a bit of that because then you get a bigger picture of the world as it is. And I think it helps in entrepreneurship, especially at least coming from my point of view because you're not just serving, like you said, just a slice of the population, you can serve, you know, more people, um, which I think is huge. Um, all right, well, on that note, I, I you know, I, I greatly appreciate your time. Um, I do, I do, um, uh, you know, enjoyed this conversation. And, and I hope to have you again on the podcast soon. Um, I know you're a very busy person. So thank you very much for being here. Happy holidays. Happy ho um, it was, this was really fun. It was great yeah. to catch up and, and I enjoyed talking with you all about this. Yeah, and I know it's snowing up there. So um, I don't envy uh, I don't think I'll be visiting right now, but maybe maybe <laughs> when it's a little bit warmer and everyone comes out from the tunnels underground. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> awesome. Thanks again, Matt. I really appreciate right. it. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to The Noob Show. If you liked that episode, feel free to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Check us out at noob.show and see you in the next one.